Hey, Deserving Listeners, today's episode is a deep dive on dependent personality disorder. This is the first chapter. I think there will be three or four chapters. I'm not quite sure yet. This is just for patrons of the podcast, but I have a little bit of a long intro here for everyone. So at first, I thought it was just going to be a short episode. You know, I've done a lot of deep dives, and some deep dives take me months to work on, and some deep dives take me, you know, maybe one month or three weeks or something. I didn't think there'd be that much prep. But the more I got into it, the more I realized that dependent personality disorder is a very important disorder for me to understand as a clinician. But also, I think for everyone else to understand, there's a lot to it. It's pretty complicated. And the more I thought about people in my life, the more I realized that dependent personality disorder is everywhere. I mean, you know, it's not everywhere, everywhere, but it's a lot more prevalent than I thought. I've had many clients with this disorder that I didn't really understand that they had this. I mean, I might have conceptualized them kind of, but not in the way that I could have if I understood this disorder and its causes. And a lot of people in my personal life have suffered from this disorder, or they're on the spectrum, if you will. And understanding this disorder really helps me understand them and their weird behaviors, or weird behaviors according to me, I should say. And I consider dependent personality disorder to be as important for clinicians and maybe even for lay people to understand uh, just as important as narcissistic personality disorder or borderline personality disorder. We, all of us, even lay people, especially if you've listened to this podcast, you've heard of narcissism, you've heard of borderline. But I think dependent personality disorder is an equally important concept for everyone to understand because I think there's a lot of people that confuse us that are operating from the schemas involved in this disorder. It's very useful to know about, very rarely talked about. We hear a lot about narcissism in our culture and in our clinical work. We hear a lot about borderline. We don't hear a lot about dependent personality disorder, strangely. And I have my theories, which I'll get into later. So in this lecture, I'm going to present on a number of things. I'm going to have a number of in-depth case examples. And this is really where my learning sort of pinnacled when I was able to pull together all that I learned and come up with some case examples. They're fictionalized, but I think you might be able to recognize other people in your life, maybe even yourself in some of these case examples. Because when you hear about dependent personality disorder on the internet, it, it seems kind of one-dimensional, but it's not. There's a lot of different types. There's a lot of different ways that people will present. In the same way that borderline can look a lot of different ways, narcissistic personality disorder can look a lot of different ways, dependent personality disorder can look a lot of different ways. And if you just read the symptoms, you really do not understand how it will present because people with dependent personality disorder, as with all, dis all personality disorders, they don't know they have a personality disorder. They think that their perceptions and their behaviors are reasonable. That's the definition of personality disorders, particularly before they get treated. And so I'm going to provide some in-depth case examples that might help to really humanize this condition. I'm going to provide a lengthy description, and I really want you to know what this disorder actually is and what it feels like. Again, if you go on the internet and you hear people just rattle off the DSM criteria, you get you know a little bit of an idea of what this is, but in my view, not really. And so it, it's, it's in the details that I think that this disorder lives. I'm also going to present on the types. I'm not a huge fan of typologies at all times, but I find that 
the typologies that have been developed by two different groups of people with dependent personality disorder, I think are very, very helpful, particularly one. I'm going to delineate it between uh, codependency. You know, we hear that word all the time and you hear me always kind of railing about it. And so I'm going to go into that a little bit. I'm going to talk about the prevalence, the differentials, comorbidities, assessment methods, treatment methods, the outcomes, you know, what, what kind of problems result from dependent personality disorder. I'm going to go into the history of how this you know, construct has been seen within the field of talk therapy and psychology. I'm going to go into the DSM history, the psychoanalytic history. I'm going to go into the causes quite a bit as well, because I think that's where you really start to understand why people develop this disorder. And there are several causes that we can talk about. Genetics, parenting methods is a big one, abuse, big five temperament sort of issues, object relations, attachment style, schemas, relational traumas, and much, much more. So I'm going to go into a lot of different things, and I'm really looking forward to this. So the first thing I want to get into is one of the case examples, the very first case example that I developed. I'm going to call this fictional composite person Aiden. This is a person named Aiden. So this is a only child in a somewhat isolated family. So Aiden is the only son, the only child in a family that lives in a rural area, in an isolated area. The parents had a style of parenting that was very firm and perhaps a little controlling. I think from the outside, some people might see the parents as being nice, firm, and maybe a little controlling if they knew the full extent of the parenting. The parents were excessively emotionally reactive, meaning that when the anything happened in their lives, they tended to have big emotions and they tend to they tended to almost histrionically express themselves you know they they had high happiness and high anger and high disappointment and all the kinds of emotions so very very reactive very undifferentiated in this way there's nothing wrong with emotional expression of course but when you're undifferentiated you tend to react in ways that you shoot yourself in the foot so the parents were like that very very reactive they would regret having gotten angry frequently. The parents would also, particularly the father, would parent in a way that was a, a style of my way or the highway. He came from a very old school way of parenting, shall we say, very firm. And so he when he put his foot down and it was his way or the highway. And both the mother and the son, Aiden, followed his direction. When he put his foot down, they, they obeyed. The parents were also somewhat self-centered, a little bit immature in this way. From the outside, you might not see that at first, but once you got to know them, you might think, wow, they're really kind of self-focused. They, they don't tend when they, especially when they're emotional. The mother became enmeshed with Aiden as a young person. She saw him as the one person who she could really trust, even as an infant, as he grew up, as Aiden grew up, she would occasionally use guilt trips to modify his behavior. For example, when he talked about moving out after high school, she became sad and sullen for a week. And now, in her mind, she's thinking, well, I'm just sad that he wants to move out because I thought he wanted to stay at home. And and then another part of her is thinking, well, you know, eventually he's going to move out. But But then another part of her thought, well, you know, it's a big, scary world out there. But the way that Aiden received it was he was being punished for exploring the idea of moving out after high school. 
The father was, again, firm but distant. He was mostly pleasant with the boy, but he would occasionally get angry and would speak in an aggressive tone. The boy grew up to be a young man, and he functioned pretty well, and he seemed happy. No major problems in his life. He got a job, but he still lived at home, and he didn't really have any huge aspirations of moving out. And when asked, he would say, well, you know, I like where I'm living and I'm, I'm saving up for money to buy a house. He seemingly liked living at home with his parents. He got along well with his parents on the surface, but deep down, he knew that things weren't so great. He knew how to handle them. When they got emotionally reactive, he knew that he would shut down and he would become a leaf in the wind, meaning that he would comply he would nod his head. He just knew to sort of check himself out emotionally because it was the only way to cope with their emotions. And he prided himself on his ability to remain calm when his parents would flip out, according to him. He didn't have any ambitions in life, none. He was totally happy living at home with his parents and working at his entry-level job, perhaps for the rest of his life. But he didn't really think about the future very much. But deep down, he knew that something was wrong with his life, but he couldn't put his finger on it. When he thought about it, he quickly changed the subject in his mind and would just get back to his normal routine. He got along well with friends. His friends felt like he was pleasant, but they also saw him as distant, as if he didn't really have a personality. He liked his friends, but he felt more comfortable at home with his parents. And soon, as he, as he aged into adulthood, his friendships started to dwindle. He had a few short romantic relationships. He tended to attract women who had, quote-unquote, strong personalities. Women like his mother, by the way. Women who were ambitious and independent. Women who were blunt and upfront about things. Women who were very emotionally expressive. These romantic partners, these women, you know, they really loved him at first because he was nice and accommodating. He was stable and he seemingly had a good relationship with his family, which is a good sign. And he never, ever, ever got angry. And that really pleased a lot of his romantic partners. But over time, they felt frustrated with him. He seemed strangely distant at time, at times, as if he wasn't there, again, a leaf in the wind. And sometimes he seemed like a child waiting for mommy to tell him what to do. Partners complained that he never stood up for himself and never seemed to know what he wanted. He felt anxiety while in romantic relationships, as he did in any relationship. He felt like women were always pressuring him to do things, like to make a decision or to speak up or to have ambition or something. And he developed a narrative that women were too demanding and too much trouble. His relationships usually ended with the woman breaking up with him and him thinking that they were overly emotional. When confronted about things, he deflected and avoided the conversation. He would say anything to get the other person off of the topic so he could return to normalcy and equilibrium. In arguments, he was very good at remaining calm and changing the subject and at deflecting. He was very good at making the other person feel like they were the crazy one and he was the normal one. He eventually married someone. She was very extroverted and she seemed very confident. They fit very well together. She would get him out of the house and he would quote unquote ground her and stabilize her. 
That's, that's their narrative together. But over time, she became increasingly frustrated with him. He would hurt her feelings in very strange ways. She began to think of him as a man-child and not as a man-man. He didn't have any ambitions. He didn't seem invested in their life together. She thought that having children might help. So they had children. It did not help. She quickly realized that he wasn't ready to be a father. In fact, he became even more childlike. She felt like a single mother of her baby and her husband. And she would often tell her friends, I have three children, my daughter, my son, and my husband. They, the conflict that, that they had grew until they were fighting almost every day, and they eventually got a divorce. After the divorce, he entered therapy. He didn't know why he was going, but he knew he probably needed to go. The first therapist was supportive, but didn't see the core of his issues. Years later, he went to another therapist. This therapist saw his core issue, his schemas of dependency. With this new insight, he suddenly understood everything. He learned how to stand up to his parents. He learned how to have confidence in himself. After a few years of therapy, he healed from his inner schemas and was able to, ha- to live a happier life. But he always retained the tendency to become dependent, but he knew how to manage it much, much better. So that is my case example of Aiden, again, fictionalized. It's a composite of people I know and clients I've worked with. And this is an example of, which, which I'll get into later, of two different types So the six types that I have developed, and I'll get into it later, are separation anxiety dependent, enmeshed dependent, childlike dependent, compliant and eager dependent, life avoidant dependent, and passive aggressive point. This Aiden case fictionalized example is a, a representation of two of the types, two of the six types. One is the enmeshed dependent this is the the dependent that merges with other people, someone that they're dependent on. And so Aiden merged with his mother and then later merged with his wife. These individuals, these people with dependent personality disorder, are willing to give up their identity. And they become essentially an extension of another person. The other type that this exhibits, Aiden, the Aiden example, is the childlike dependent. These people with dependent personality disorder will present in a childlike, immature way. They will seem inexperienced, and they will seem incapable of assuming adult responsibilities. So in this deep dive, I am chapter one. I'm going to go into the description of dependent personality disorder. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and professor. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast, so if you want to listen to the rest of this episode, you have to be a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. When you become a patron of the podcast, you'll get instructions on how to listen to this episode and the other chapters in the Dependent Personality Disorder Deep Dive, along with hundreds of other episodes that are only available to patrons and are probably our best episodes. I think I'm confident in saying that you know, our top 10% episodes are just for patrons. So go to patreon.com, become a patron of the podcast if you want, and take care of yourself. Otherwise, because you deserve it, you really, really do.
All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. Thank you so much for becoming a patron. The first thing I want to delineate from dependent personality disorder is the word codependence. This is the word that a lot of lay people will, will use as a, a synonym for dependent personality disorder, and a lot of clinicians, frankly, use it as well, which kind of drives me nuts. Codependence, as I will frequently talk about, it comes from the world of addiction, of alcoholism specifically. It's a non-clinical term for people who are essentially co-pilots in the chemical dependency. You have the dependent person, the chemically dependent person, the person who is dependent on alcohol. That is the dependent person. And then you have the co-dependent, who is the co-pilot in the dependency process. In the beginning of dependency rehab work, they would treat the person who had the dependency problem, the person who had the substance use problem, But they found that unless they also treated the spouse, who was usually the codependent or the co-pilot in the dependency process, that they couldn't really uh, change the dependent person. They couldn't really help the the dependent person to become sober. They had to treat both the dependent and the codependent. Codependency is defined often by enabling, denial, over-functioning, feeling superior, feeling needed by the dependent person, even resisting sobriety efforts by the addicted person. As the person with the substance abuse problem tries to get sober, the codependent will often sabotage that. Not always, but sometimes. And so that is the codependent. And the term codependent and addiction isn't super well defined because it's in the world of addiction, which is not as obsessive with defining things and researching them as much as psychology or psychiatry. So the word codependency doesn't really have a very clear definition other than what I basically just provided. The other usage that people will use when they say codependent is at least I think what they mean by it is that it's basically two people who are dependent on each other, as in those two friends are codependent on each other. And I think that the lay public, when they hear that we're codependent, it sounds like, you know, like a co-op. When you think of a co-op or a, a cooperative game or something, you're thinking about people working together. And I think when they hear codependent, they think two people who are mutually dependent on each other. Well, again, that's not a clinical definition of, of the term. It's not even close to the definition used in addiction, which is the what the clinical definition is of. And it is very, very far from the definition of dependent personality disorder. So whenever you hear someone say codependent, in all likelihood, what they're really describing in clinical terms is at least what they think they're describing is dependent personality disorder. And so I just want everyone to just consider that as we move into the world. Okay, so let's talk about the main characteristics of the dependent personality disorder. So usually what people will do is they will describe, they'll, they'll read the DSM language, the DSM criteria, which is good, it's fine, but it doesn't really get to the core of the matter because the DSM is designed to be a quick way of uh, assessing and diagnosing people. It's behaviorally based. It's not based on what's going on inside of the individual, which is much more important than what's going on on the outside. But anyway, 
So I'm going to go over. So I, when I looked at all the different symptoms and experiences, I came up with six different categories. So number one ex- characteristic is life dependency and incompetence. So people with dependent personality disorder, deep down, they feel and exhibit some level of dependency on other people due to their incompetence. So these people will have low self-confidence. They'll have feelings of helplessness and weakness. And by the way, if you aren't already, you might want to think about someone in your life who you think might have this disorder. And then as I go over these experiences, these characteristics, you might be able to match that up. Now, if you're not a clinician, you obviously can't diagnose that person because it takes a professional to be able to do that. But you might be able to get an idea of, of what maybe you would refer someone to if they were to go to therapy and to be properly assessed. And maybe you want to think about a few people. You might think back to past partners or even yourself or one of your parents or a friend of yours or a coworker. And if you're a clinician, think of those clients that seemed very dependent, very incompetent, very childlike, very, uh, you know, still living at home with their parents, that kind of thing. That's not a you know, slam dunk indication of dependent personality disorder, but it's a, you know, it's a red flag. So again, the number one main characteristic is dependency on other people and incompetence. So these individuals, they have low self-confidence. They have feelings of helpless, helplessness. They have feelings of weakness on the inside. Now, you might not know that it's happening. And that, you know, when I talked about Aiden, you heard me not, not really describe much about what was going on, on the inside of him because he didn't really know, which I'll get into later, what was going on on the inside of him. So, you know, these characteristics, and again, when you hear people describe dependent personality disorder online, you hear them describe all these things, but it it kind of depends on knowing what's going on inside someone. Anyway, so uh, the low self-confidence is usually present and not all. And by the way, when I go through all these characteristics, not everyone with the disorder has every single one of these, you know, they would have some combination or, you know, a percentage of these things. But it's important to know that people with dependent personality disorder, they might not walk around or even know that they even have low self-confidence. They just feel like they just feel like their low self-confidence is normal or something given the circumstances. Okay. So on the inside, whether you see it or not, they might have feelings of helplessness and feelings that they are weak. They will often believe deep down that they are incompetent in general, not just, you know, all of us feel incompetent in some things, you know, like I feel incompetent in the kitchen. I I'm not very good at cooking things. And uh, but I feel competent in podcasting. I've been doing it for 13 years. So the dependent personality disordered person, they feel incompetent in all domains for the most part. And that's that's the disorder, is that they truly believe that they cannot do things on their own in any domain. They believe they are powerless and ineffectual. They believe that others are confident and competent. That's an important part of the disorder is they believe that they are incompetent and certain others are very competent because that's where the dependency comes in. So, you know, they will latch on to someone else who they believe really understands how to navigate the world. They have 
a lot of difficulty making decisions without excessive advice and reassurance and mentorship from other people. They truly do not trust their own decisions. They need others to assume responsibility for them. Regarding low self-confidence, they might call themselves bad names like stupid. You know, they might say, oh, you're so stupid. They are looking into the mirror. They might say things like that. They tend to rely on other people for help, even in situations where it's possible for them to function alone. They have anxiety when they are required, when they are required to do things independently, especially when they're being evaluated by others. They have a lot of difficulty initiating tasks for fear of messing things up. They can't start things on their own. They avoid many of life's responsibilities. They tend to allow other people, often the one person they depend on, to assume responsibility for most major areas of their life. Usually they are preoccupied with fears of being left to care for themselves. They tend to be passive instead of assertive. They gladly give up control to other people, particularly the person they depend on. They need others to validate their beliefs and behaviors. They don't have confidence in it. As teens, they may rely on a parent to make most of their decisions, what to wear, what classes to take, what they should do with their leisure time, what their future will look like, etc. As adults, they often still live with their parents for longer than is typical for their, for their culture, or they are excessively dependent on their parents or spouse. This doesn't include people who have justifications for dependency like physical illness or depression or something, but if they don't have some sort of justifiable reason why they're, why they're still uh, majorly dependent on their dependent individuals, then it's, again, an indication of dependent personality disorder. They typically won't pursue a career without excessive amounts of guidance or pushing from others. And this isn't necessarily super related, but they can be extremely pessimistic at times, not always, and they can also be very sensitive to criticism, but not always. Okay, so that is all of the characteristics within the category of life dependency and incompetence, and I hope it's clear from this description what people with dependent personality disorder have. Now, if we look at Aiden when I described him, we don't see that explicitly, right? He did live at home, but he wasn't overtly talking about how he can't initiate things. He had a job. But remember, at that job, he didn't really care about moving forward. He didn't have any ambition. And he even kind of just worked at that job because he felt like he was just supposed to. And he only worked at the job because his dad sort of forced him to work at the job. If his dad didn't force him to work at the job, he would have just never worked at all because he was only he only felt safe. He only felt okay when he was at home with the parents and the parents, particularly the mother, was telling him what to do. Remember that he enmeshed with the mother early in life. She enmeshed with him, and he enmeshed with her. And he depended on her to, to tell him everything, you know, when to go to the doctor, when to go to the dentist, uh, what to wear, when to shower, when to do everything. And all those things added up to dependent personality disorder. But underneath all that, was this belief that he could not do things on his own, that he was completely incompetent. If you asked him, do you feel incompetent? He would say no. He would say, I feel fine. But that's part of the dependent personality disorder is that people don't usually know that they are suffering in this way. They'll, they might, you know, the Aiden example that I gave, gave it's like, 
he might say, uh, no, I'm fine. I'm good at things. But when it came time to actually do something like date or get married or move up in a career or even know what he even wanted, he was blank. He didn't know what to do without his mother telling him what to do. So that's a that's a key understanding of dependent personality disorder. It's like some some people with dependent personality disorder absolutely know that they have low self esteem and that they feel incompetent, but others they don't necessarily know because it's so pervasive in their personality and they've learned to kind of go into denial about it. So I'll get into other present other case examples later where they might have more awareness of it. But with Aiden, you know the way I described him, it. it you wouldn't know that deep down he felt incompetent, but his behavior pointed towards a central belief of incompetence and a belief that he could not function without his mother telling him what to do. Okay, so let's go on to the number two characteristic, the main characteristic here. This is what I'm calling relationship dependency. So remember, the first one is life dependency and incompetence, and this one is just general relationship dependency. So in this category of characteristics, we have a humongous fear of separation. Again, they might not exhibit this on the surface, but they definitely have a fear and operate from the fear of separation. And it was consistent probably since they were very young. It's an all-consuming, unrealistic fear of being abandoned. They might be clingy uh, in, in subtle or overt ways. They have excessive fears of being alone, being without their dependent person. They are anxious and they feel helpless when they are alone. They are desperate for support from others. They have a huge wish to be cared for, helped, and protected. And I just want to uh, pause here for a second. All of us want to be cared for and help and protected. All of us want to have people that we can depend on. You know, I want to depend on my wife, right? But this is excessive. We're talking excessive. Now, when we go back to Aiden, especially when we get into some of the other case examples I give. So with Aiden, he deep down wanted to grow up. You know, when he was 18, he wanted to start thinking about a career, maybe going to college, you know, start doing this, start expressing himself, maybe saying no to his parents now and then, maybe moving out or something like this. And he couldn't accept that or even entertain that because of his deep need for enmeshment with his mother. He did not believe he could function on his own. And so he stayed in that enmeshment and would go into denial about it. Again, if you asked him, do you have ambitions? He'd be like, no, I'm content. But he was not content. He was not happy deep down. He was very sad and uh, lost and just felt safe with around his mom. He just, he he didn't know how to put it into words. And if you asked him, you know, how come you haven't moved out or something at the age of 30, he he would say, well, you know, I'm saving up to buy a house. I'm, I'm just, I'm just really fiscally responsible and I like my parents. But deep down, he didn't have a connection with who he was and what he wanted. He, he was in denial about what was going on. And it was a seductive idea in the family. It's like everyone went along with that idea. Oh, he's living at home because he's trying to save up for a house. But if they just scratch the surface a little bit, they would, they all recognize, no, he actually 
there's something different about him. There's something about him that makes him believe that he can't function on his own, and none of us know how to help him with that. Because, and I'll get into the parenting styles that result in this in a little bit. But anyway, so these individuals have a huge wish to be cared for and helped and protected. They're helpless when relationships end. When relationships ends, they will de- they will desperately seek another person to depend on. Now, with Aiden, when he had relationship, romantic relationships end, he always went back to his mom. In fact, he never really went away from his mom. The only time he went away from his mom is when he finally got married and moved in with his with his wife and started having kids. That's when he started depending on his wife for the most part. So, uh, when when the relationship ended finally, when they got a divorce. That's when he went to therapy because he felt so bad. He felt so alone. He felt so scared. There was something very disturbing about it. And he had feelings about wanting to move back home with his mom, but he just thought, you know, something, I did, maybe I should go to therapy. Uh, people with this sort of dependency, they won't take risks that might result in them losing a relationship, meaning they won't move out of the house because that, you know, that risks losing the person that they depend on or at least the type of relationship, they won't maybe even get a job because that will pull them away from their dependent person. When alone, they feel extreme loneliness and demoralization. Uh, Also, they have difficulty saying no due to fear of disapproval and loss of support. This isn't everyone with dependent personality disorder, but a lot of people have this issue particularly to the people they depend on. Sometimes people with dependent personality disorder can say no very easily to outside people. But to the person they depend on, they it's almost impossible for them to say no. For Aiden, it was impossible for him to say no to his mom. And then once he moved out with his, with his wife, it was impossible for him to say no to his wife. He could not say no to her. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't want to say no, and it doesn't mean that he doesn't kind of indicate he wants to say no, but he would never overtly say no. He would always obey. He would always comply. Uh, they have problem state, These people have a problem stating an opinion out of fear of loss of approval or uh, loss of support. So basically, they believe that in order to stay safe, they need, to de- they need someone else's support. And in order to get that person's support, they have to comply with everything that they say. And that runs into a problem with Aiden's marriage in that his wife would become very frustrated with him because she might ask him a question and he would just say, well, whatever you want. And that to her felt like he wasn't really in the relationship. Uh, Just doing what she wanted was fine because she liked getting her way. But when it came to something, she wanted him to participate. And that stance that he had felt to her like he was not invested when, in fact, he couldn't be invested because he was too terrified of losing her support. And so he was just like, just tell me what to do. I'll do whatever you want. Now, again, this doesn't mean that they don't have anger. It doesn't mean that they aren't exhibiting frustration or something, but that's that's what it operates from. They, they feel as though they are unable to function alone, uh, that they, they will agree to do things that they really don't want to do rather than losing the person that they're dependent on. They will place needs and opinions of others above their own, meaning that uh, and it'll be weird too. People with dependent personality disorder, 
they'll quickly change their opinions and values and wants based on the person that they're dependent on based on their opinions or whomever they're sort of depending on in the moment. And they'll be adamant. You know, they'll say, oh, I'm, I'm adamant. Yes, I love red shirts. And then someone else comes along that they're depending on and they're like, and, and it's, that person's like, I hate red shirts. And then boom, I hate red shirts. And they'll believe it. You know, you hook them up to a lie detector test in both instances and they're telling the truth. In one instance, they hate red shirts. In the next instance, they love red shirts. I mean, a more common example would be something like, I, I want to get married to that person. And then because the girlfriend is saying, let's get married, and then he starts hanging out with his mom, and his mom is like, I don't think you should marry her. And then boom, he's like, yes, I'm not going to marry her. It, you, you can see this pattern uh, a lot in people with dependent personality disorder. The, the, these dependent and submissive behaviors, these passive behaviors, are designed to elicit caregiving from the person that they're depending on. So this is an important part, and I'll get more into this with projective identification, but when you are dependent, you you actually not only are dependent in one direction, but you're also trying to make the person that you're dependent on to take care of you. You're trying to you're trying to seduce them or get them to collude with your needs. So for example, with his mom, they had a dynamic word that was facilitated by both sides. But when he got married, when Aiden gets married, his wife wasn't as dominant or wasn't as interested in enmeshing with him the way the mom was. And so she would push back a little bit or she would just figure, well, you know, you can figure this out on your own kind of an attitude. And he would do things to try to manipulate her into taking care of him. Uh, the way that Aiden would do it is he would just act incompetent. He would act childish. She might say, well, maybe, you know, when they move into their apartment, she might say, well, I'm going to go to work. So can you unpack the boxes or something? And then she gets home and she sees that he kind of unpacked the boxes, but he did it in this really terrible way that screwed up everything. And he's just sitting on the couch playing video games and she just looks at him. It's like, what is wrong with you? You know, what did you, what did you do here? And he's like, I don't know. I, I I tried to put the stuff away, but I just didn't know where anything went. And the wife is thinking, oh my god, my husband is a child. He doesn't understand how to do things. He does understand how to do things. It's not it doesn't take a genius to know how to put things away. And, th- and that's one of the most frustrating things about being in a relationship with someone that is dependent is you will frequently find yourself saying, why am I explaining every little thing to you? Why do I have to explain to you how to unpack boxes? I mean, for me, I, no one ever taught me how to unpack boxes. I just figured it out. You know, I Googled it or I just logically worked my way through the steps. You know, I didn't, the first time I moved, yeah, I didn't really know how to unpack boxes, but, you know, I just, I set out to figure it out. Well, the people with dependent personality disorder, they don't even begin that process because they don't believe that they're going to succeed, even though they will. That's what's so weird about it is that they're, you know, often, usually they are smart enough to figure things out on their own, but they're so delusional about their incompetence that they believe what's the point in trying. It's sort of like if someone gave me like 
some massive, well, like string theory, for example. I, I don't understand string theory. So if some if someone really understood string theory, and when you really understand it, you know you don't really understand it. That's the that's the 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 proverb. But anyway, if someone came to me with like a string theory algorithm, I don't know. They wanted me to give a lecture on string theory. I would just look at them and be like, uh, no, <laughs> there's just no way. And they're like, well, you know, look it up and f- you'll figure it out. I'll be like, um, no, I know enough about string theory that no matter how much time you give me, even the rest of my life, I will never be able to lecture about it intelligently. It's just I know enough about it to know that it's too confusing. Well, that's the way dependent personality per- people think about everything, even unpacking boxes. They're just like, I can't do this. There's just no way this is going to work out. And also, if they do things independently, it threatens their dependent relationship with the person that they're, if they prove themselves to be independent, then their caretaker will stop taking care of them. So they both don't believe they can do it. And it's in their interest to be incompetent so that people will continue to caretake them. But of course, this shoots them in the foot because the wife eventually is so tired of having a third child that is the husband that she divorces him. Um, so they learned that they had to be submissive to be safe. They will go along with anything rather than risk rejection. They will often, quote unquote, tag along regardless of anyone's wishes, meaning that they you know, won't want to be alone, that they will, you know, say uh, his wife and a friend are going to a movie and it's like a girl's night out. He'll he'll want to go along because he's just like, um, I'm I can't be alone, that kind of thing. Now, again, not everyone with dependent personality disorder has that. For example, with Aiden, he didn't really have that aspect to it. So I'll get when I give, I have four major case examples that will kind of subsume all of these characteristics eventually. So if you're thinking of someone, particularly if you're a clinician, and you're like, well, they certainly meet some of the core issues, but they don't meet all of the issues. So it, it's a matter of, of degree and a matter of type, which I'll get into later. Um, these people will use a variety of behaviors to retain care from caregivers they need a lot of affirmation from others as they go through things. They need a lot of reassurance for small issues like, you know, what time that they are going to eat, this kind of thing. So using the unpacking of the boxes example, Aiden, uh, you know, the wife says, okay, I need you to unpack the boxes. And he'll, so he'll go, okay. So he goes to the boxes and he says, okay, where do I put the plates? And the wife is like, I don't know, figure it out on your own. And he's like, well, I don't understand why you're yelling at me. Well, I don't understand where I'm supposed to put anything. And the wife is just like, okay, fine, put the plates here. And so he, okay, so now he's compliant and he feels good because she's telling him what to do. He puts the plates there and then he comes back and there are bowls. And he's like, uh, where do I put the bowls? And the wife is like, just can you please just let me do these other, we need to delegate here. I'm unpacking the bedroom stuff. Can you just figure it out on your own? And the husband, Aiden will just be like, uh, I don't know what to do. And he might even do things to 
get out of it somehow. Like he'll just be like, well, if you're just going to yell at me, I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to hang out with my friend. Or if you're just going to yell at me, I'm going to play video games. Or if you're going to yell at me, I'm just not going to do anything, you know? And because what's happening for the, you know, the person with dependent personality disorder, they don't know they have it. So all they know is that they're terrified of doing things on their own, but they don't know they're terrified of doing things on their own. They just feel like their other people are being unfair. And so, because when he grew up, his mom literally did tell him everything to do and wouldn't let him make his own choices, which I'll get into later. Um, People with dependent personality disorder, they can be introverted, but not always. They can be childlike, but not always. Again, some spouses will complain about feeling like they are a parent to their spouse, like with Aiden and his wife. They might look for someone who seems to be very confident and prone to controlling behaviors like the way Aiden did. Aiden uh, dated women and married a woman who seemed very confident, seemed like a strong person. Now, people with narcissistic personality disorder or antisocial personality disorder or something else along these lines might be attracted to someone with dependent personality disorder because they can take advantage of that person. An an abusive individual will fit very unfortunately well with someone with dependent personality disorder because the person with dependent personality disorder is just like, tell me what to do. I'll do whatever you say. I'm incompetent. I'm stupid. I don't know anything. Will you please guide me? And the controlling person will love that, right? Because they can control the person and tell them what to do, isolate them from everyone. And then, you know, obviously it spins out of control. And there are lower degrees of this as well. And yeah, as I've been saying from the beginning, actually, my Aiden example is purposely lower on the spectrum. Like he might actually not qualify for the full-blown dependent personality disorder uh, diagnosis in the DSM. He might just have schemas that are on that spectrum. I purposely uh, provided that example because that version of dependent personality disorder spectrum is very common in the same way that when I presented on narcissistic personality disorder, when you have the full blown disorder, it's, it's pretty noticeable, but when you're on the spectrum, it might not be as noticeable, but you might be suffering quite a bit. And Aiden suffered quite a bit once he got to therapy and he started working through his issues, he started to improve, but you know, his his life felt like it was constantly going down the tubes, lots of low self-esteem, never feeling like he understood why relationships never worked out. Uh, he, he was always scrambling to get safe. And it was, you know, it's, it's causing a lot of distress. Okay. So again, uh, main characteristics, there are six of them. Number one is general incompetence and life dependent, you know, dependent on other people because of life circumstances. Number two is relationship dependency, you know, being very clingy and not knowing how to say no. And then number three, we have suppressed anger. So everyone with dependent personality disorder on some level has a problem with anger. And this is the one thing that I always ask my supervisees about when they're presenting a case is uh, because I'm hearing like hints of dependent personality disorder. And then I say, how are they with anger? And if my supervisee says something like, oh, well, you know, he, he expresses anger pretty well. But if I hear something like, uh, and then that doesn't indicate dependent personality disorder. But if I hear something like, oh, they're never angry. They're, they're, we, we sort of see people who are never angry as healthy in our society. It's like, oh, 
you're always nice. You're so balanced. But that's actually the opposite. If someone's never getting angry, there's something wrong there <laughs> because there's always injustice that is happening on an individual level, on a relational level, on a societal level. If you aren't feeling anger and expressing your anger, something went wrong in your childhood that made you want to suppress it. And with dependent personality disorder, they were treated in such a way or they had life circumstances in such a way that made them suppress their anger in very, very significant ways. And so now some people with dependent personality disorder are able to get kind of angry at times. And some people with dependent personality disorder are able to get very angry in very short bursts. But but there's always some level of problem with suppressing anger. And it's not usually discussed in the literature, but I have found it to be a central feature to dependent personality disorder. Now, there's a lot of overlap with passive-aggressive personality disorder, which you can listen to my whole deep dive on that. Dependent personality disorder and passive-aggressive personality disorder are actually extremely similar. In fact, one might even argue that they're the same thing and they're just different types of the same thing. And I might make that case too. But I like the fact that we have passive-aggressive personality disorder that is separated out, uh, or at least not in, in the DSM, but in terms of the literature. Anyway, so suppressed anger is is a... There's some level of that, and it has to do with that difficulty disagreeing with others, right? In order to disagree with someone, you have to feel the injustice and say, hey, I disagree with you. And anger gives us that motivation to say, no, I don't want to do that. Uh, these people will lack assertiveness in this way. They rarely express or f even feel their anger. When you ask them, how angry do you feel on a daily basis? They'll be like, I never get angry. Now, they might, uh, some of them might actually say they feel angry sometimes, but it, some of them say they never feel angry. Um, they will see themselves as being very nice and very easygoing. Other people often see these people as being very nice and easygoing, and they can be passive aggressive, which I'll get into later. All right, number four, this is another one that is left out, is a lack of connection with self. And this is really common to most, if not all, personality disorders. But I find that it's incredibly important to identify this because it is a central feature of this personality disorder that is almost never discussed. And it also explains a lot of the problems. And you hear me often talking about a lack of connection with self, and a lot of people have this issue. So... In a nutshell, if, if as a refresher, because I'm, I'm sure you've heard me talk about it before, is when we're young, we need a lot of attunement and space to explore our own emotions and needs and uh, feel safe enough to explore and to express ourselves. If we don't get that, then we graduate into adulthood without really knowing who we are, what our emotions are, do we matter, what do I want in life, can I even... Uh, you know, express myself? Do, does anyone care? And these questions don't even get asked because the assumption is no one cares. So why even start? And the symptom that I will see in clients is I'll ask them, what do you want? And they'll say, I don't know. Or they'll say, well, I don't mind doing this. Or they'll say, well, my husband wants me to do this. And I'll say, okay, that's fine that that's what your husband wants you to do. But what do you want to do? And they'll be like, um, well, I don't know. I don't mind doing this and that. I'll be like, okay, that's great. You don't mind. What do you want to do? And they'll be like, 
I don't know how to answer that question because I don't think I've ever even asked that question before. So now when you ask me, because my parents raised me well enough, Kirk, what do you want? I got answers. <laughs> I have things because my parents raised me well enough to get in connection with my needs. When I say, you know, people say lack of self, but I find that to be a bad phrase. It's actually lack of connection to the self because there's a self there. Everyone has a self. Everyone has feelings and needs and emotions and reactivity and wants and dreams and aspirations and ambitions. Everyone has that and preferences, but a lot of people aren't in contact with it in the same way that a two-year-old often isn't in very good conscious contact with those kinds of things. They, you know, they haven't developed it yet. So we have to help people to get in connection with that. So people with dependent personality disorder, because of the way they were raised, which I'll get into later, they often have a limited or complete lack of connection with who they are and what they want. And so this leads to a lack of assertiveness, right? Because how can you be assertive when you don't even know what you want? You also need someone else to define you because you don't even know who you are. And that's that enmeshment part. You also don't know what to do with your life. You need someone else to tell you what to do because you don't know what to do. You're used, you're con you're used to, since the time you were born, someone telling you what to do. And every time you ventured off on your own or were forced to, something went wrong, usually early in life, which I'll get into later. Okay. So number five this is another important part that I've been alluding to, which is, uh, per, you know, this personality disorder is pervasive, meaning it goes through your entire uh, personality. It's There's a lack of insight. It's distortive in long term. So pervasive um, is, you know, is, is the word we use for all personality disorders, meaning that the disorder pervades their entire being, their entire psyche, as opposed to most Axis 1 disorders, say like panic disorder. Usually people with panic disorder know that it's excessive. Like for me, I've suffered from panic and my cat wants to chime in. And, and by the way, <laughs> the pod wife is working on some merch involving a, a, a painting that she made of my cat and the shirt will say, or the mug will say, my cat wants to chime in. <laughs> and I love it. It's really great. Anyway. So when I had panic disorder, I knew that this thing that I had was excessive. I knew that my anxiety was irrational. I couldn't control it. It was terrible. But I knew that it wasn't rational. It was like uh, my body is freaking out. Well, for people with personality disorders, the condition is what we call ego syntonic, meaning that they it's it's pervasive through the system. So... For example, when I had panic, I would, for example, I don't know, I, I, I would feel a symptom like my heart was racing or I was confused and I would, my, I would have this invasive thought that I was going crazy or I was going to die. But there was another part of me that would look at that part of me that thought I was going to die and say, no, you're not going to die. Okay. So part of me thought, oh my God, heart racing, I'm going to die. But another part of me was looking at that part of me and going, no, I'm pretty sure I'm fine. I'm pretty sure this is just a panic attack, but especially once I understood panic attacks. People with dependent personality disorder, they can't reflect on the self and say, wow, I'm really dependent. Or, wow, I, I have an excessive sense of incompetence. They, you know, 
that there are people who lack self-esteem and you'll be able to look at that and say, huh, wow, boy, do I lack self-esteem sometimes. I beat myself up a lot. I underestimate myself. It doesn't mean that you, you have high self-esteem. It just means that you can reflect on the fact that you have low, low self-esteem. Well, when you have dependent personality disorder, you you don't know that there's something to reflect on. You just think it's normal. You think you're rational. The dependent personality disorder person thinks it's completely rational for them to depend on their mom until they're 45 because there's just no other option. You know, they, they don't look at that and say, huh, I wonder if there's something weird about the way I see the world. They don't do that. And even if they do, it's really hard for them to identify with that with that other uh, self looking at the self, if that makes any sense. So anyway, so that's what we mean by pervasive. And also, they usually lack insight into the disorder, which I've gone over. It's distortive, meaning that it it grossly distorts their perceptions. You know, someone with dependent personality disorder, their perceptions of the world is that the world is very scary or that they can't function on their own or the person that's taking care of them is so competent that they couldn't possibly live without them telling them what to do. And they everything gets filtered through that lens, right? Um, and also it's long-term, meaning that it's developed since early childhood. We don't we don't diagnose three-year-olds with dependent personality disorder, though, because we can't know until they're an adult. But the disorder begins in early childhood, and you probably never really get rid of the traits because, uh, you know, like I told, talked about with Aiden, he went through therapy, and he did a lot better, but he never really got rid of the tendencies. Okay, so that brings us to the sixth main characteristics characteristic, which is that it causes distress and dysfunction which is a criterion for all the personality disorders, if not all the disorders in the DSM, most of them. Basically that, uh, you, you know, say you have someone that's, you know, on the dependent spectrum, but it doesn't cause them any dysfunction or distress. Uh, so let's say for Aiden, after he goes through a lot of therapy, he still has tendencies, he still thinks of himself as incompetent sometimes. He still kind of seduces his future relationship, romantic relationship into taking care of him. But, you know, it, it works out. He's able to apologize or figure it out in time or adjust or not let it become too severe. And thus, it doesn't cause him any dysfunction in his relationship. It's not causing conflict. It's not causing him distress. And thus, he doesn't qualify for the diagnosis anymore. So the other thing I want to mention that I kind of mentioned earlier is that, you know, this really varies by culture. So, for example, in some cultures, it's not really stigmatized to be dependent on your parents throughout your life. There are Asian cultures, for example, uh, pockets of in Asian uh, society, Korea, Japan, other places where it's it's okay to live with your parents for the rest of your life. It's okay to, de- to depend on your mom the rest of your life. And so we just have to keep that in mind because in the United States right now, we pathologize dependency in all of its forms. So in the United States, if you are from this culture and you're a clinician, you might be biased towards thinking that some instances are pathologizable when they aren't actually. 
So we just really have to look at, again, is the life of the individual dysfunctional in some way? Are they having a hard time in relationships? Are they having a hard time with finding joy in life or getting what they want out of life? Um, now, can you be in a culture where it's okay to stay with your parents for the rest of your life and also have dependent personality disorder? Yes, because like say you're in a culture where it's totally normal to live and it's becoming more and more normalized to some extent in the United States because of housing prices and the job market and stuff. But uh, let's say that someone is living with their parents and, you know, pretty dependent on them financially and, and emotionally into at the age of like 35. Well, we can't just look at that and say, Oh, dependent personality disorder, because maybe they don't, we'd have to ask that individual how incompetent do you feel? And there'd have to be, or there'd have to be some indication that they operate from a lens that they are completely incompetent and that they're, and, and also they would have, they're operating from a place that they cannot function by themselves. They can't be by themselves. They can't do anything by themselves. So just living with your parents, obviously, is not a slam dunk uh, indication of dependent personality disorder. It's, it's deeper than that. But it is a, a red flag. Okay, so let's look at DSM-5 criteria here. And I find the DSM-5 criteria for dependent personality disorder to be a pretty good description of the condition, at least from the outside. Okay, so it says this, the disorder is indicated by at least five of the following. I believe there are eight different criteria. Has difficulty making everyday decisions without an excessive amount of advice and reassurance from others. So we've mentioned that before. Needs others to assume responsibility for most major areas of their life, you know, like their career or where they're going to live or whether they go to school or what classes they're going to take or whether they should get a car or what kind of car should they get married, you know, all these kinds of has difficulty expressing disagreement with others because of fear of loss of support or approval has difficulty initiating projects or doing things on their own because of a lack of self-confidence in judgment or abilities rather than a lack of motivation or energy. So with this criterion, they're differentiating between depression and dependent personality disorder. You might have someone who has a really hard time initiating projects. They might be living at home, but the this criterion is saying, you know, they have difficulty initiating projects or doing things on their own, like getting a job or uh, applying for a job or dating or, I don't know, cleaning their own room even. And what this is saying is like the reason why they have difficulty initiating is because they lack self-confidence in their judgment or their abilities. It's not because they lack motivation or energy as in with depressive personality disorder. They go through excessive lengths to obtain nurturance and support from others to the point of volunteering to do things that are unpleasant. So this is referring to people who might be in an abusive relationship in order to get nurturance from others. They feel uncomfortable or helpless when alone because of exaggerated fears of being unable to care for themselves. This is a pretty big one. Aiden, for example, had this that... He could not move out from his mom's house because he felt extremely 
just a total exaggerated fear of being unable to live by himself, for example. And so that's why he found a very strong personality woman to marry, and he was uh, dependent on her. Urgently seeks another relationship as a source of care and support when a close relationship ends and is unrealistically preoccupied with fears of being left to take care of themselves. So that is the DSM-5 criteria set. And I think it's pretty good, but I don't know. if, If that's all you read which is often all that's read on the internet. I feel like it you know, kind of gets at it, but not really. Okay, so let's talk about prevalence. So uh, the prevalence rates vary by studies. So some studies say it's almost non-existent. Other studies will say it's extremely prevalent. So I'm just basing my numbers on all the different studies that I've read and trying to take into consideration the best studies and the meta studies. And it also really depends on how it is, how it is measured. The the threshold of what constitutes someone with dependent personality disorder versus someone who has traits is up for debate. You know, some people would say that person has dependent personality disorder. Another person would say, no, that person is in the direction of dependent personality disorder, but they're subclinical. So that's why there's a lot of different uh, prevalence rates. But what I would say is that one to 2% of the uh, population around the world meet the full criteria. Uh, But I will say that many are on the spectrum. I think that for this disorder, it's one of those things where the distribution of folks that are on the spectrum is that there's a it's like a bell curve where there's a lot of people who are in the middle, like at the 50% range, and we wouldn't actually categorize them as, as meaning full criteria. But then you have sort of a, a lesser amount of people above the 80%, which would be like the full criteria. So there's a lot of people who are on the spectrum, in my opinion, uh, and in the way I measure it. Another study found that in psychiatric inpatient units, 10% suffer from dependent personality disorder. Okay, now what about gender? Now, in current uh, studies and in the DSM, they don't talk about any non-binary people or queer people. They only talk about male and female. I'm sure that will change in a very slow fashion over time, but it is the way that it is. And what you'll hear, especially online, is that more women suffer from dependent personality disorder than men. And I purposely provided a, a man up front with Aiden because I want to break that that notion in the same way that with narcissism and borderline, a lot of people consider borderline to be a female thing and narcissism to be a male thing. But it's actually uh, more complicated than that. Uh, there's a lot of studies that will say that dependent personality disorder is you know, more of a woman thing. But then other studies will say it's a 50-50 thing, which I tend to agree with because of the following reasons. One is, is that it's how you look at the research in general, and it's how you determine if someone has dependent personality disorder. So uh, some even argue that the way that the criteria are worded, it's worded in a way that is to catch more women. It's a way to overpathologize women, right? And uh, I won't go into the details on that, but, but we can definitely uh, imagine someone who is assessing someone. So say someone comes in and they 
they have low self-esteem, they have a hard time motivating themselves, they're sort of childlike in some ways, and they look at a woman and they're like, okay, dependent personality disorder. And then they look at a man and they, they think, oh, depression or anxiety or something. So I think that's part of the issue, and I think that's what people point to as part of the issue as to why some studies see more women as this and other studies see it as a 50-50 thing. To me, the most important thing is that people need to understand how it presents in men and women differently, because it does. It, it Not always, but it tends to present itself in men and women differently. So I'm going to, through my case examples, I, I hope that it will, you know, kind of start to look more like, oh, I could see how that would, uh, you know, manifest in, in men and women. Now there's overlap. Anyway, I'm sort of rambling. <laughs> All right. So differentials. Uh, it, it, a lot of times dependent personality disorder will be confused with mood disorders because of a lack of motivation and, um, and a lack of doing things, you know, lack of being able to uh, be independent. So like I was saying earlier, sometimes it, it can look like depression or it can look like dependent personality. Anyway, anxiety disorders also, uh, can look like dependent personality disorder, so, you know, people with dependent personality disorder, they're very anxious because they can't be independent. So you might find someone with dependent personality disorder who is just like terrified of going to a job interview or they're terrified of going to the store by themselves. And so it's tempting to look at them and say, oh, they have an anxiety disorder. But no, they don't have an anxiety disorder. They have a schema, a pervasive belief about themselves that they that they can't go to the store by themselves. They've never done it before without it being terrible for them. So you can see how that would look like agoraphobia, but it's not agoraphobia and vice versa. Now, there's a lot of comorbidity between mood disorders and anxiety and dependent personality disorder. Also, avoidant personality disorder. So some of you might remember my deep dive on avoidant personality disorder. And these people also will stay at home a lot of times because they believe deep down that there's something deeply flawed with them and that everyone can see them how flawed they are. You know, a common thing that people will say with avoidant personality disorder is like, I don't want to go outside because I just know everyone is looking at how stupid my face is or everyone just knows how awkward I am all the time. So there's, there's just I'm terrified of people seeing how wrong I am in the world. And so I'm just not going to leave. So it's very different. That's a defectiveness schema rather than an incompetent dependent schema. It can look similar from the outside, but it, it generates from a different place on the inside, if that makes sense. Now, an avoidant personality assorted person can become very dependent, and a dependent person can become very avoidant, but you really have to understand the schemas at play to differentiate between avoidant and dependent. Passive-aggressive personality disorder is another thing, and, then, and there's a lot of overlap, which you know I was talking about earlier. And we have borderline personality disorder because uh, it can be mistaken for dependent personality disorder in that when you have borderline, you can be very clingy, right, because you have abandonment trauma and you might feel like you can't do things on your own because you're just terrified of abandonment. So you're very clingy. You just really want someone to be there all the time. 
but but it, so it can look similar from the outside, but it's a very different condition, and it, and it usually presents very differently. But again, the schemas underneath everything is very different. The borderline person has deep traumas around abandonment, and the dependent person has deep traumas around incompetence and being left to their own devices. And histrionic, similar to borderline, uh, can have a lot of overlap with dependent personality disorder. Okay, so let's look at comorbidities, meaning that uh, these disorders often are uh, present with dependent personality disorder. Anxiety disorders are often present. They can sort of feed off of each other. So, And I'll get more into later about the early development of dependent personality disorder and how early anxiety can help fuel the beginnings of dependent personality disorder. Mood disorders, for sure, uh, when you have controlling parents, it can both lead to a mood disorder and or dependent personality disorder. And again, those, those two things can feed off each other. If you have dependent personality disorder, you are very susceptible to depression because it's a, it's a very depressing life because you're not doing anything. You, f- you feel like you're completely ineffectual. You feel like you can't do things on your own. Uh, people might be sort of forcing you to be independent and you're just terrified. You don't know what to do. So depression can often set in. Also, eating disorders can be prevalent along with dependent personality disorder because a lot of people with dependent personality disorder go through relational traumas that can both result in the personality disorder and eating disorder. Somatization disorder, meaning that the person has a lot of physical psychogenic symptoms like pain that generates from the stress of dependency, that kind of thing. Because when we are stressed, we are more susceptible to physical problems and we have an unconscious desire to kind of drum up our physical problems because it will suck people into taking care of us. There's also substance abuse will be comorbid often because as the person is struggling to cope with their dependency and their anxiety and maybe their depression and their abuse that they might have gone through early in life, they will often use substances to cope. There's also some uh, comorbidity with borderline and histrionic, which I talked about. There's also some uh, and some uh, differential with schizoid and schizotypal. So schizoid people... will often stay home. And I've talked about this in other deep dives on personality disorders. So schizoid people, the idea goes is that they actually don't care about relationships. Uh, People with avoidant personality disorder, people with dependent personality disorder, they might avoid relationships, but it's not because they don't want them. They actually do want them, but they're terrified. The dependent person is terrified of, of moving away from their caretaker and and or their dependency kind of annoys relationships that they're in. And the avoidant person avoids relationships because they're sure that other people are going to see how stupid they are. That's the lens. That's the distorted lens they see the world through. And so, but the schizoid person, at least the way it's uh, uh, conceptualized, is either through trauma or the way they were born They just literally do not care about relationships, and they would just rather be at home by themselves doing things on their own. Schizotypal, which I won't go into, can also uh, be a sort of person that isolates a lot, and it can look like dependent personality disorder. 
Um, and again, avoidant personality disorder also can be comorbid with uh, meaning that you can both suffer from avoidant personality disorder and dependent personality disorder. So in this person, they would both have traumas and schemas around everyone knows how stupid I am. Everyone knows that I'm wrong in some way. And I'm going to avoid relationships and people because of that. And I'm extremely dependent on my mother because I know I can't do things on my own. So you can have both of those disorders. And this, you know, this kind of brings up something that I wish were different in the DSM or at least our language. I, I much am, I'm much more like the schema model, which I'll get into in another chapter when I talk about causes, because the schemas kind of break everything out so that it, it just makes more sense anyway. Okay, so the how to assess dependent personality disorder. Well, the, to assess it, we typically will use self-report questionnaires, meaning that we give people a survey and we you know, ask them to check off different symptoms that they might have, you know, like, do you feel? And I'll get into more of that later as well. Also, structured interviews, meaning that the assessor will have an interview that is uh, formalized or uh, manualized, you know, certain questions that you ask. And also unstructured assessment interviews, which is what I do. When I assess people and their personality, I'd use what is termed unstructured assessment interview, which is basically just what psychotherapists typically do by talking. There are different interview measures, different structured interview measures. There are five that are frequently used. One is called the interpersonal dependency inventory, Another is called the Structured Interview for DSM Personality Disorders in general, the International Personality Disorder Examination, the Structured Interview for Diagnosis of Personality, and the Rorschach Oral Dependency Scale that was developed in the 60s. Um, I've actually done Rorschach and, you know, Inkblot, and it's, you know, it's kind of interesting, but I don't know, it's, it doesn't feel as useful as other ways of just asking people questions, to be honest. <laughs> anyway... Um, the most widely used questionnaire is the Milan Clinical Multi-Axial Inventory, or the MCMI. And I've actually taken this, I've administered it, and they actually break up. Uh, th- this this um, measure is, a, is supposed to measure a lot of things, but mainly personality disorder. And it breaks up dependent personality disorder into three dimensions. Inept self-image, interpersonally submissive, and immature self-representations. And I, I think that, you know, this is pretty good uh, breakout of the three main components. So we have an inept self-image. So that's that I am incompetent thing. And then number two, we have interpersonally submissive, meaning please take care of me. I'll do anything just so you will take care of me. And then we have immature self-representations, meaning that the individual kind of thinks of themselves as a child and not as an adult. Um, and I've actually taken this this test, the MC, and MCMI, so did Birdo. Honestly, I, I gave it to him. I, I, I administered it to him. And I actually scored very low on the, the dependent personality disorder spectrum. I'm, I'm, I'm almost zero. And later I'll get into why I think I am so low on the dependent scale. Um, I'm actually on the other end of that spectrum. I'm actually pathologically independent. You know, dependent personality disorder, you could, in a phrase, you could say another word for it is pathologically dependent, meaning that 
everyone is dependent on other people, but these people are pathologically dependent, overly dependent. Well, I am pathologically independent. Berto actually kind of scored high on the dependent scale uh, because he sees himself as being inept and submissive somewhat, um, which was surprising to me. I didn't know that. And that, that's kind of the deceptive nature of dependency and dependency personality traits is that if you would have asked me, I would have said, no, Berto is extremely independent. You know, he's very good at his job. He function on, on, functions on his own really well. But what's going on inside of him is anxiety about pleasing others and anxiety about doing things on his own. And he has trouble initiating things on his own because he thinks he's going to screw it up. But at the same time, we all kind of know that Umberto has very high self-esteem. But does he really have high self-esteem about everything? So it's it's kind of deceptive. De- dependency is actually – it's kind of um, hard to put your thumb on. You can't just look at someone and be like, that person now, – now, some people are very obviously dependent, but – if you're on the spectrum somewhere, it's a little harder to detect, which I, I don't know. I kind of like that. I like that it is more real in that way because, you know, humans are very complicated. Okay, so now let's get into the types. And this is our last little bit here. But I really like this section because I think it really helps to flesh out the disorder. So there are two different typologies that I want to present the first one is okay. The second one I love. But the first one is by Pincus and Gertman in 1995. So I looked at their typology and I modified it a little bit because it. I just wanted to make it. I, I have. I, I. I'm just. I always wanted to modify things to make it make more sense to me because I'm going to use it in the future when I look at these notes. I want to be able to use it for myself, and so I, I modified it anyway. So according to Pincus and Gertman, there are three different. Uh, types or dimensions of dependency. One is love dependency. The other one is exploitable dependency. And the other one is submissive dependency. And so I'm going to read the items on the measure that if you say yes to these, then you have that kind of dependency. So the first one is love dependency. So this refers to what I was talking about earlier in terms of relationship dependency. But anyway, so... I constantly try to please or help people I am close to. I constantly try to please or help people I am close to. I often find myself thinking about friends or family. Okay, so that item isn't a slam dunk, right? It's like if, you know, a lot of people think about their friends and family a lot, but people who are dependent, they they almost always are thinking about other people a lot that are, you know, their caretakers a lot. After a fight with a friend, I must make amends as soon as possible. I frequently ask people for advice. The idea of losing a close friend is terrifying to me. I find it difficult to be separated from the people I love. It is important to me to be liked and approved by others. Okay, so that's love dependency. Exploitable dependency is... I find it difficult to say no to people. I am afraid of hurting other people's feelings. I am overly apologetic to others. If I think somebody may be upset at me, I immediately want to apologize. Anger frightens me a lot. I worry a lot about offending or hurting someone who is close to me. 
I do things that are not in my best interest in order to please others. Disapproval by someone I care about is very painful to me. I am very sensitive to others for signs of rejection. Okay, so that's exploitable dependency, meaning that if you have those, if you have a lot in that dimension, you're more susceptible to being exploited by others. And the third is submissive dependency. I would rather be a follower than a leader. I don't have what it takes to be a good leader. I am certainly lacking in self-confidence. In an argument, I give in easily. In social situations, I tend to be very self-conscious. I have a lot of trouble making decisions by myself. Okay. So those, you know, I, I, I find that those three categories are okay. I'm not super in love with them. But the Milan five subtypes, which I actually added a sixth subtype to it, um, I actually really like these, you know, these, these subtypes. So Milan, Milan's view on personality disorder often makes a lot of sense to me. Um, not always. So I, I kind of like this, but anyway. Um, and uh, remember when I was talking about Aiden, Aiden had two of these six. And I find that a lot of people usually have two or more of each of these types. So let's go through these. The num- number one is the separation anxiety dependent. So this is someone who is lonely and less near supportive figures. They are restless and anxious, especially when they're worried about being alone. They feel dread and foreboding often. They're often pessimistic and they feel vulnerable to abandonment. So this is separation anxiety dependent. And Aiden didn't have this, but some people with dependent personality disorder will in that they're basically in a constant state of worry that they're going to be left alone. The ne- the second type is the enmeshed, de- what I'm calling the enmeshed dependent, what Milan called the selfless dependent. This is someone who merges with someone else. They're willing to give up their identity. They become an extension of the person they're depending on, and they can be masochistic and self-sabotaging. So this is what Aiden was. He merged with his mom and then later merged with his wife. He basically became an extension of his wife. Number three is the childlike dependent. Aiden was also this. So this type of dependent is, of course, very childlike. They're mature. They will be very inexperienced given their age. You know, you'll have a 25-year-old who, I don't know, doesn't know how to apply for a job. Or you'll have a, an 18-year-old who, I don't know, doesn't know how to drive a car. I don't just you, just various different age. You know, we can't just look at those behaviors and, and say dependent personality disorder. But someone with this type of dependent personality disorder will definitely, if you just take an, an assessment of all the things that they know how to do and the responsibilities that they have, they will be they will be living a much younger lifestyle. So it's not uncommon for someone who's thirty five with dependent personality disorder to essentially be living the life of like a 15-year-old, meaning that they're still very dependent on their caretaker. They can, you know, they're really anxious about working. They need to stay close to their caretaker all the time. Um, 
so anyway, so that that's the childlike dependent. Number four is the compliant and eager dependent. And by the way, when I go into all the different uh, case examples in each chapter, I'll I'll give presentations on each of these types. But the fourth type is the compliant and eager dependent. These people will adopt submissive roles very well and very easily. They're very gracious to others. They're very eager to please. They're very compliant. They're very accommodating. They're very agreeable. They can be even histrionic or sort of over the top with their agreeableness and very over the top with their compliance. And they suppress deep feelings of anger and disapproval. Number five type is the life, what I'm calling the life avoidant dependent. These people seek a very limited and easy life. They are very unproductive in life when you assess you know, all the things that they do. They come across as quite incompetent and unable, and they refuse to deal with anything that could cause difficulty for them. And they might be schizoid-like. Remember, you know, schizoid are people who really just have no interested no interest in being with other people. Well, these people might look schizoid, but they're not. They're just avoiding. They're just avoiding life altogether. And on the surface, they're very untroubled by their shortcomings. But deep down, they're actually quite in distress. And the sixth uh, type, which is one that I added to the Milan typology, which is the passive-aggressive dependent. Now, some people might say, well, you know, why don't we just say this is just passive-aggressive personality disorder? But I find that there's so much overlap that I, I think it's important to include this. So people with the passive-aggressive dependency are people who are very dependent, and they're overtly nice. They have low self-esteem, and they're attracted to strong people, quote-unquote. They struggle between dependence and independence often, meaning that they might often even talk about it. They might be like, oh, I just, I just need to get out from underneath these people, but they don't really get out from underneath people. They're often very compliant with their people, with their loved ones, but they can be secretly very rageful and hostile in a very secret way. They can be quietly stubborn and they will eventually exhibit hidden hostility or passive aggression. Like they might cheat on their spouse, they might be quietly resentful, they might write in their journal all these horrific things about their parents or their spouse. They might purposely forget things as a way of trying to express their anger. They might talk bad behind people's backs. They might pit others against each other. So this is that passive aggression or hidden hostility. Okay. So those are all of the types. And that is the end of this chapter. So let's again review the main characteristics. We have low we have life dependency meaning that they feel very incompetent, low self-confidence. Uh, they believe they're incompetent in general in sort of all aspects. They have difficulty making decisions, difficulty initiating tasks, tend to be passive. Um, they let other people make decisions for them. Number two, they have relational dependency, meaning they're very fearful of separation. Um, they have difficulty saying no. They might be a little introverted, and they usually use a variety of behaviors to subtly retain the care of caregivers. They will suppress their anger usually. They lack a connection with self to some degree. 
It's pre- it's pervasive. They lack insight. It's distortive and it's long term. And there's some distress and dysfunction. And we have to consider culture when we're th- when we're assessing people because we might make mistakes. I would say in terms of prevalence, we're looking at about two percent meet full criteria in the United States. And but I would venture to say. I don't know, 10% of people are, you know, significantly on the spectrum somewhere. And I suspect that gender does not play a role. And the six different uh, types that I like to use are the separation anxiety dependent, the enmeshed dependent, the childlike dependent, the compliant and eager dependent, the life avoidant dependent, and the passive aggressive dependent. All right, so tune in next time when I continue with Chapter 2 and I present another case, and we will go into the next bit that I want to talk about, which I haven't decided what it will be yet. <laughs> and everyone out there, well, and, and also uh, email me, you know, use the link, go to the website, psychologysound.com, click on the contact page. I would love, 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 love to hear your stories of people you know, or even yourself, that might suffer from dependent personality disorder. I, I'm i in a phase right now where I want to absorb everything I can, and hearing about case examples really helps me to fully understand it, and I might be able to read it on the podcast as well. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. 